ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. And today I have with me Lawrence Heim. Lawrence has one of the most unique professional backgrounds I've seen, and he now runs practicalesg.com. But most importantly, is the second fellow Texas Longhorn to be on any of my podcasts. So a big hook them and shout out. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And I'm even more honored that I'm only the second Longhorn as well. So hook them back. So could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, you know, it's certainly has been a little bit of a circuitous route, probably the way that most folks are. But I've been in environmental sustainability, ESG in various ways for about 35 years, starting out as a legal assistant in the Austin office of Vincent and Elkins Environmental Practice, moved to technical consulting, then the in-house staff at what was back then a Fortune 150 manufacturer, took a leap into the unknown a bit to help launch an environmental risk consulting practice at the world's largest insurance broker, shifted back to technical consulting for more than a decade, and then recently landed here in something of a journalistic role with a brief stop at an industry association and their responsible sourcing program in between. I was doing some research for this podcast, Lawrence, and I saw your professional background on LinkedIn. It made complete sense to me that you're an ESG, and I don't know why, but I'd never thought about the path that you took. And I say that because in another life, I actually did an, had an environmental practice in my law firm, and it just made complete sense. But I wanted to use that as a lead into the question of how did this varied background in various roles in environmental work lead to your current passion around ESG? Well, you know, it's funny. I actually remember the day when my path kind of shifted. It was in 1993. And that was when the fire was lit to actually kind of see meaningful linkages between environmental management and business value. And kind of this is where the whole kind of path toward an ESG type of, I don't want to say end, but ESG path kind of started. And I actually talk about this moment in my book, but someone I know gave me a preprint copy of Michael Porter's Green and Competitive Ending the Stalemate essay that was published in Harvard Business Review, ultimately. And that completely changed my way of thinking. Prior to then, I was really focused on environmental compliance since that was the time, as you're well aware, that that was a time of unprecedented and dramatic development of the regulations the environmental regulations. You know, this was in 1985 when I started up to the early 90s. But that essay really changed my way of thinking about environmental management and really started me going down this path that we now call ESG. The other part of your work that I found very interesting was that at Marsh. And Yet again, in another life, I did insurance defense work and I did coverage work. And certainly Marsh and what I would say Marsh Mac was a huge player 
And when I saw that work, it also made complete sense to me, part of your evolution. So I was wondering if you could tell us some of the things you did at Marsh and why having sort of that perspective as truly risk management or risk management focused has helped inform your views on ESG. Well, you know, I think it was quite valuable, that experience. And to me, the first thing that I learned, which frankly was a little painful at the beginning, is that I realized I didn't know a darn thing about risk management, at least not in the traditional risk management sense. I thought I had an idea about what risk was, but really I didn't. And even today, sometimes I cringe a bit when I hear sustainability and ESG folks talk about risk, because I think what we as ESG and sustainability professionals have fallen into is using our own terms and benchmarks and understanding of risk without really knowing how our own companies manage risk, the benchmarks that the risk management department uses. And it's really critical that ESG professionals discuss and work alongside traditional risk management folks within their own firm, because otherwise what happens is we as ESG professionals will use different terms, different definitions, and different benchmarks than those used by the company's risk management function. And and we shoot ourselves in the foot when we do that. So it's really important. And what I learned first is that if we as ESG, if we're inconsistent with the company's own terms and definitions and views on risk and risk management, we really shoot ourselves in the foot in terms of credibility within the organization. You also focused early on on what I would call responsible sourcing. And I've always looked at that as a part of or a path to ESG. But I wondered, how did the responsible sourcing initiatives that you were involved with really inform your views on supply chain and, more importantly, the supply chain component to ESG? We you don't. Know, I think the fact that there's significant ESG risk embodied in global supply chains, I think that wasn't a real surprise to me. But what I did learn and what I was surprised by and continue to be to some extent is how companies deal with those risks. I think some companies take meaningful and swift action to engage with and educate their suppliers on how to manage their own ESG programs. But at the same time, there are still companies at the other end of the spectrum that really do little more than continue reporting the same ESG supplier failures year after year. So that was a bit of a learning for me. And I got to admit, I still have to adjust my own thinking on occasion in realizing that different parts of the world do indeed place far different values on ESG matters than we do, say, here in North America or in Europe. And these things have continued to influence my approach and my thinking about supply chains. One of the most interesting evolutions over the past year during the pandemic for me has been this awareness of supply chains. And I frankly was a little surprised about that because it's the largest spend every corporation has is in their procurement function. And the value that can be added either through 
things like responsible sourcing and management of your supply chain are just simply looking at it in a way from a business perspective seems to me to be somewhat basic, but I'm you know still reading people are saying, oh, we have to now risk rank our supply chain and manage it better. Did you see an evolution in how companies thought about supply chain as well? Has there been an aha moment or have supply chain professionals been doing this all along just below the radar? I wouldn't necessarily say there was any one particular aha moment. I think it's been a evolution over time. I do believe it kind of started in the textile or garment sector when you know certain brand name clothing manufacturers became aware of and the public became aware of you know certain workplace condition failures with those supply chains and the public outrage, at least here in the U.S., related to that. And then we moved to the event in Reina Plaza and the collapse of that building, also with buried within the supply chain of name brands. And then we had Conflict Minerals, which I think, although I wouldn't call it an aha moment, I think that really may have been a significant event in the whole concept of kind of consolidating the feeling about supply chains and the ESG risks embodied within those or embedded within those supply chains and then how companies can respond. I think one of the things that the conflict minerals rule did is it somewhat busted this myth that it was impossible or incredibly costly to to really look into your supply chain and the ESG risks that are within your supply chain, and then helping to move your suppliers toward improvements in that regard. Let's turn the focus a little bit now to your current role as editor of Practical ESG, and that's really how I became aware of your work. What led you to become the editor of this new site? Well, I'd been one of the folks that the parent company, CCR, Corp had reached out to over the years on conflict minerals matter. So I had known the managing editor, my boss, Liz Dunshee and corporatecouncil.net for several years. I knew they had a big following and a good reputation, especially as an objective resource, a trusted resource in corporate governance and securities law. And they'd been covering ESG topics for some time, but they made a decision to try to create a separate space on ESG to go into more depth in these emerging issues. And Liz called me one day to discuss this idea of starting it. I thought the idea and the approach was really exciting. So we worked something out. What is the mission of Practical ESG? The name itself really sums it up. PracticalESG.com. There's just too much information out there on ESG, as you well know. And folks are really struggling with how to approach program development, program implementation, and disclosure, as well as just kind of understanding the basics from a practical point of view. You know, so there's just a tremendous amount of information out there, and not all of it is particularly practical. So our mission is to really help companies and their legal counsel, their internal management, external advisors, and and even auditors to help understand practical considerations of ESG. And so one of the things that we do is we cover some of the do's, but we're also not afraid to bust some myths and 
point out things that may not offer particular value. So some of the don'ts as well. So you've just described me. I hope there are other readers because it sounds like you described exactly why I go to the site. It has great resource. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again multiple times on this podcast and anywhere else. I think it's the go-to site right now. But where do you hope the site will go down the road, Lawrence? Well, the blog itself is new. It was just launched this past April, and certainly it's continuing to grow, which we're happy to see. And I appreciate your thoughts and comments about it as well. We'd love to hear that. It's going to continue to grow as a resource. And in October, we're also going to be expanding to a subscription offering that is similar to corporatecouncil.net and the other CCR Corp sites that we have. And those will grow over time as well. Members will be able to get practical and in-depth content on each of the pillars of ESNG. Each area will have curated content from third parties, original content from our staff and our advisory board, a compendium of other resources from law firms, auditors, governmental agencies, standards bodies. We will also have, again, following the model that we have with other CCR Corp offerings, there will continue to have unique tools available like checklists on ESG topics. And actually, we're I'm even going to be updating my book through the practicalesg.com platform as well. Well, I'm going to save your book for a special uh, bonus segment that we're going to talk about your book. But I wanted to ask for someone new to ESG or someone who's been assigned this role in a corporation and told, go off and figure this out, where should they start? Wow, that's a tough one. Just the sheer volume of information that's out there right now makes it quite hard to sort the wheat from the chaff or sometimes even find a starting point. I think one approach might be to just find a starting point and start reading. But keep a skeptical mindset. And I think that's probably the most important thing is to maintain a skeptical mindset. If somebody reads something and it doesn't make sense, well, you know what? It probably doesn't make sense. Don't expect to find the answer, certainly not right off the bat. The thing is, is that there's credible and valid information arguing different sides of the same coin. There is conflicting information, and some of the conflicting information is very solid, very valid, and quite reasonable. I would say, at least at the beginning, stick to information sources that you've got confidence in, that you feel or know are credible, but then dig a little deeper. The documents that are referenced, the source documents within any of those information sources that you're reading, take the time to go find those documents and read those yourself and come to your own conclusion. I think maintaining that skepticism is kind of critical right now. So I've been pretty passionate about advocating that the chief compliance officer and the corporate compliance function is well-suited to lead a corporate ESG effort. That, however, is not a a unified position within the greater compliance community. And I was wondering, do you have an opinion on this topic one way or the other? There's no question to me that the CCO absolutely has a meaningful role to play. But I think where things kind of begin to diverge is that every company is different, not only in terms of size, culture, 
industry sector, there are a lot of differences that come in into play. The CCO may be best suited to lead ESG in one particular company, but another company may be better served by having it someplace else, you know, like maybe finance or legal or operations. It depends in part on who at the company has the passion and skills to lead this undertaking. The necessary skill set includes technical understanding. You need to be able to, to collaborate with other folks within the organization, get their buy-in from a lot of other departments. I do feel strongly that where in the organization ESG lives reflects how seriously the company takes ESG. For instance, companies that have ESG living in, for instance, marketing and communications, I think they generally see ESG as little more than a marketing brochure. To contrast, when ESG reports directly to the CEO, or in some cases does indeed fall under the CCO, you know, the function is more gravitas and impact and tends to get employee and staff attention a little more so. So let me turn uh, to some topics kind of down the road in that fatal land of the future. But let me start by asking, over the past year uh, during the pandemic, starting perhaps March 2020, and now as we're opening up the economy a little bit, did that pandemic change companies' approach to ESG from your perspective? I think it has had an impact. And I think it's been a positive one in that it forced companies to really take a look at how they deal with certain aspects of the S and focusing on employees. How is it that we can best serve our employees? They're a key stakeholder in all of this, in how companies function and how employees were treated in terms of managing the whole COVID crisis, you know, working from home being a key part of that. We're starting to see some of the new announcements and over the last couple of days about returning to the office. And there's been concern about how some of those companies may be managing that and then how the workforce may be responding to that. I think to me, that's probably the most significant ESG impact that coronavirus has had. I think it's been a positive. Now let me turn down the road a little bit to perhaps 2025 or beyond. What do you see companies needing to be thinking about in terms of a more long-term ESG strategy? Well, first off, let me say that I've never been particularly accurate when it comes to reading crystal balls. So let me put that out there. However, I do think that the things that companies if they're not already thinking about and making meaningful progress towards, I think in 2025, everybody, companies are going to be forced to deal with climate programs. I think water availability and use is something that is not getting the attention that it should be right now. And yet here, the whole Western United States is in what people are now considering to be a permanent drought. I think diversity, equity, inclusion is no longer going to be kind of a standalone issue. It's going to be fully integrated, or at least that is certainly my hope, integrated into the culture of of companies. 
I think companies at that time are going to be forced to understand what I call the new power of the proxy in shareholder initiatives, what we saw with ExxonMobil and a minor shareholder being able to dramatically alter that company's future. And then I think, you know, perhaps at a more tactical level, ESG disclosures and one of my favorite topics, improving controls and verification for self-generated ESG data. So now let me turn to your book, Killing Sustainability. I'd first like to ask why you wrote the book, who the audience is, and tell us a little about your upcoming update. I wrote the book really to just kind of clear my head in a lot of ways. I had been writing on sustainability and ESG topics through my former company, Elm Sustainability Partners, through their blog and had aggregated years worth of thoughts in that blog and decided, you know what, it might be a good idea to write a book about it, kind of consolidate those thoughts and then kind of put them in a consistent theme and maybe have it flow and make it sense. That was a different time. I wrote it in late 2017. It was published in 18. And at that time, there was not a whole lot of information, valid, credible information out there that really made sense. A tremendous amount of academic work, but translating that to something that was practical and meaningful, that kind of Rosetta Stone did not yet exist. And this was before the current status of things now with so much emphasis and so much new study and new information on the topic. What I wanted to do was kind of, as the title implies, my feeling based on client work was this old sense of what sustainability was, it just wasn't working. And it had lost any credibility within senior management at many, many companies. And part of it had to do with actually use of the word itself. And so the basis of the title, Killing Sustainability, was, look, I'm not talking about killing the concept, but let's stop using that word because there's baggage associated with that word and it's longstanding baggage. So let's change the conversation. Let's even change the terminology in the words and have it be more aligned with how senior management sees things and how they want to hear communications presented to them. That was the basis of the book. Unfortunately, what happened was almost immediately after it was published at the beginning of 2018, the world changed in ESG. And I think that's a good thing, actually. And these conversations really began to be more real. They began to be more rooted in business and make more sense. The upcoming updates are going to continue the focus on practicality. They're going to update, kind of bring the concepts to reflect the last couple of years of what has happened. I'm happy that the foundation of the book is still sound. And frankly, of course, I had nothing to do with this. The world simply changed on its own. But much of the basis of the book is still valid. I mean, it's kind of the way things evolved in the market, which I'm happy to say that, but it needs updating because of the fundamental seismic existential shift that occurred over the past couple of years. 
Lawrence, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information on either yourself, practicalesg.com, or really follow up on any of the topics you've discussed today. How could they do so? Starting off at practicalesg.com is a great thing. You can contact me through that website directly. Uh, You can always contact me at my email, l-h-e-i-m at ccrcorp.com. And I'm happy to respond to any questions or comments anyone may have. Well, I'm going to end by saying again, I find practicalesg.com to be the go-to resource for the nuts and bolts of ESG, plus some great commentary. So I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to sign up. And you answered the biggest question, which was why I never saw any of this information before April. I wondered if it was just me, but I found out, no, it's not just me. So Lawrence, I really hope that we can continue this conversation down the road. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me and uh, look forward to continuing to help you out in the future.